I'm a firm believer that like peak creativity comes in some sort of box or some sort of rules and how far you can stretch it out. But I always encourage people to like flip things around. Welcome to the Future Podcast, a show that explores the interesting overlap between creativity, business, and personal development. I'm Greg Gunn. When you hear the term sound design, you might think of fight sequences from action films, like a fist landing on someone's face, the cocking of a shotgun, or even a building exploding into a giant ball of fire. But you probably don't think about the subtle, atmospheric sound design that permeates your screen. The icy wind underscoring an Arctic journey. The ambient noise of a crowded outdoor market unique to Bangkok. You see, great sound design often goes unnoticed. It takes you out of your seat and submerges you into the story, adding a new invisible ingredient to the experience. Today's guest is a sound designer and an acclaimed podcaster, and he's on a mission to get people to curate the sounds in their life. In fact, you might have heard of his TED Partner podcast, 20,000 Hertz. In this unique episode, our guest talks about why sound is just as important as all your other senses. Because if you care about the taste of your food or the smell of a room, then you should care about sound just as much. He and Chris discuss the business side of working in sound and what it takes to make a living doing so. The storytelling, sonic branding, and how to get clients excited to work with you on the very first call. Now, I wouldn't call myself an audiophile by any stretch, but I thoroughly enjoyed listening to this, and I hope you do too. Please enjoy our wonderful conversation with Dallas Taylor. First of all, thanks for doing this with me. I, I did go through a bunch of the links that you sent over, and uh, this is awesome because I feel like I'm talking to another person from my past, like in the old days when we did advertising and worked with sound designers and composers like yourself. So for people who don't know, we're going to be taking a little detour today. Now, it seems weird that I would be saying this on a podcast, but a lot of the people that I talk to are visual people. They create things that you see, but today's a little different. We're on a podcast, so it's very appropriate to talk to somebody who spends their life listening to sounds. And so uh, Dallas, do you mind? Can you introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about what you do? Sure. Uh, so I'm Dallas Taylor. Uh, I am a sound designer. I own a company called DeFacto Sound, and we do trailers uh, for companies like HBO and Netflix and video game companies. Uh, we do big like car spots uh, and ads for anything that's uh, fun and sound designy. Uh, and then we also have uh, a podcast uh, that's called 20,000 Hertz that's affiliated with TED, like the TED Talks people. I didn't know it was affiliated with TED. It is, yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so um, I started the podcast about five years ago. Uh, it was something that had been rattling around my brain for probably three years prior to that. Um, I was really inspired by Radiolab, 99% Invisible, this oh, American yeah. life. Same here. Oh my God. You're, you're saying the yeah. same things. Yes. Go on. And so, um, I know Roman Mars from, uh, years ago, uh, as soon as he put the show out, I was a really early adopter. I think I found out about 99 PI through radio lab, uh, which I also listened to since the very beginning. And early on, uh, Roman covered a lot of stories that were in the sound realm. And so I just found myself, I mean, I would listen to every episode, but then it came to the point where like the second I knew there was a sound show on 90 or at least a sound topic on 99PI, uh, it was like drop everything and listen to it. And then over the years, like uh, 99PI um, kind of uh, crystallized even more into the whole idea of like reading the plaque and uh, kind of the designed world uh, visually. They still occasionally will do sound shows. Uh, but it's but it's few and far in between. And so over the years of 99PI kind of uh, changing and adapting, um, I, I just I, I felt like there was space there for a, a sound podcast that was crafted at that same level, uh, but it was all 
based off of the sound. So uh, they're all about like visual design by humans, mm-hmm. whereas sound can kind of go, we, we definitely cover a lot of human design sounds, but then we get into a lot of neuroscience and science and space and uh, nature and all kinds of stuff. And so kind of with Roman's blessing, um, I don't think he ever really gave a blessing, but he did give a, a hearty nod. Uh, I decided to kind of pick up that that topic and, mm. and take the ball and run with it. Mm-hmm. And so it took us a year to make our first two episodes, which in, which in hindsight, uh, they're, they're okay. Uh, but a lot of people have learned, have, have heard them. Um, mm-hmm. the first ones were, uh, the first one was the voice of Siri, like the Apple original voice. And the second mm-hmm. one was all about the NBC, uh, ding, ding, ding chimes and the whole right. history behind that. Uh, but yeah, that's, that kind of was born out of, um, a passion project, uh, from the sound design studio. Mm-hmm. So how does this become a part affiliated with TED? So we published, um, let's see, the week of the election in 2016. Uh, okay. We've been fiercely non-political since then, and uh, I treat it very much like an escape. Um, three and a half years went by, uh, independent. We've had a lot of traction on uh, on through other podcasts and NPR and um, press and all that. And eventually it, it, I guess it got the attention of Ted who, uh, is kind of building out their slate a little bit more. They have things like the Ted radio hour that's affiliated with NPR. They, uh, do, they put out Ted talks, uh, mm-hmm. Ted talks daily. Um, they have things like pin drop and checking in and, uh, all of these other, uh, shows, but they were starting to bring on original or not a, uh, like they were not originals. They were starting to bring on independent shows that kind of met their criteria of technology, entertainment, and design. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they kind of caught wind of uh, 20,000 Hertz, I guess, that they had been listening for a while. And as soon as they reached out, it seemed like a really natural fit for our show. Um, we, I had, uh, you know, I'd been talking to all kinds of networks and there were multiple network offers beforehand, uh, but they all kind of like started the conversation with, we'll sell your ads. And, and I'm like, okay, and what else? Uh, and it's like, we'll sell your ads. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm already selling my ads. So coming out of the advertising world or working actively in the advertising world, um, I was kind of the unique in the unique position where I'm not only the host of a show, but I also am capable of navigating that world. Mm -hmm. But Ted came along and they were the first network that came along and said, we really love your mission, which is to get the rest of the like normal people into sound um, and curate sound like they do their other human senses, and uh, it felt really natural. Like they were very uh, mission based right off the right off the bat, and that appealed to me. Um, the fact that our show is just so technology, entertainment, and design oriented uh, made a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, so then we started. Um, we were working this out in March and April, and then we announced uh, our first uh, episode under the TED banner uh, on August first. What episode number was that? 100. And it was all wow. about... okay. That works. <laughs> it was the, about the Netflix uh, Tadum sound mm-hmm. that they have mm-hmm. never uh, told the story about. And so mm-hmm. it took us a year to navigate the right people and sound designers and brand managers to kind of get to the, per, to the people who were on the front lines of that. Okay. Now, as a fellow podcaster, before I geek out on all the things underneath what you just said, I want to <laughs> kind of pull us back a little bit because... Uh, although that's kind of where this conversation began, I, I was just curious about the overlap in advertising. So as, as uh, kind of a, our timelines might cross here, I started my motion design firm in 1995 and had been actively working with ad agencies making commercials up until about a couple of years ago. Now, I'm a little curious because I've seen this happen to my friends who are very talented working composers and just their... The, the, it's a race to the bottom. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, people are preferring needle drop or just or working with superstars. And then the composer who writes original music, that market seems to be kind of like nearly gone as far as I can tell. And I, I wanted to ask, what was your take on that? And also then to draw the distinction between sound design versus music composition. Yeah, Um we definitely think the opposite uh, as far as a race to the top when I'm, when I'm thinking about where we're going. But I hear you on uh, composition uh, and some elements of design. Uh, but 
there's always a market there. It's just that, um, I don't know, the, 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 the more I kind of get into this high-end stuff, I realize how many more high-end places there are. Um, so to kind of give a little bit of a difference between what we do and what composers do, um, the thing with music is it's so human and so many people can inher- inherently make music. You know, not everyone does it well, mm-hmm. uh, but, but it is something that's very human and very natural to humans. So when people get into the sound world, generally, uh, like when I went to recording school, it was like 98% of the class all wanted to do like hip hop or uh, like rock music or something. And then you kind of then find a a small fraction of that, that want to like compose for TV or games or films and stuff. Now out of, out of that, it's just like the, the, the tiny itty bitty fraction of those people actually are even aware that there's this whole other world of sound design. That is all that gray area between music, um, the world and dialogue. And so a lot of people don't think to go down that path, but, uh, but it's something that like every piece of content, at least anything that's like of, of decent size, uh, needs that sort of thing to actually sell well. And mm-hmm. I just fell in love with it early on. I, I had started as a trumpet player in my, uh, through, through my, through high school and college and stuff. And that's what I thought I was going to do eventually in college struggled with performance anxiety and it kind of crushed all of my trumpet dreams. And, and then I went to recording school, kind of saw that everyone wanted to do, do music. And that's why I went there. Uh, and then very quickly realized, I don't think I'm going to be able to make a living doing this. (laughs) And, uh, Mm -hmm. and then eventually kind of found, or actually very quickly found, uh, like sound for TV and film. And then kind of the rest is history. I got a job here and then it just kind of slowly moved its way. Um, uh, kind of around from coast to coast. I worked at Fox and G4 and NBC. My last job before starting de facto was as a sound designer at the Discovery Channel and all their networks. Mm. And then 11 years ago started uh, de facto. Mm-hmm. And are you on the West Coast? Uh, I'm kind of all over the place. <laughs> what okay. does location even mean nowadays? Mm-hmm. Um, so I've lived in uh, uh, Arkansas, Texas, Tennessee, LA, DC. Um, yeah, just kind of all over. Okay. So there's a bunch of things, again, I had to kind of unravel and unpack for our audience because they, they may be hearing the word sound designer for the first time. And, and so let's just kind of expand on that so that we're all talking about the same thing. Is it like the way it sounds like, what does a sound designer do? So, um, there's kind of two lanes here. There's like Mm -hmm. sound design and there's mix. And so we're going to cut mix out of that for a little while and just think about sound design for a second. Um, The things that are usually provided are dialogue from the set. So if you have any sort of uh, set audio, it's like like the vast 99 percent of the of the priority is to get the dialogue clean. Everything Mm -hmm. else can be rebuilt with a company like ours. Right. And then with um, music, that's something that can be provided through a music library or uh, through a composer. Uh, So everything in between those, uh, everything else that you hear is sound design. And Mm -hmm. so it can be as overt as say like Bois and and Brams in in trailers, like these Mm -hmm. big Hans Zimmer type of hits or like Mm -hmm. a cymbal scrape if something's eerie uh, or like a bowed cymbal or a reverse riser that kind of like builds tension. Those are like emotional sound effects. And so we use those a lot. Like the sun will come up and we'll put a very subtle glimmer with that. Um, But then there's other uh, aspects to sound design. There's Foley. Those are the things that you touch with your hands or your feet generally or your cloth. So um, when you record that, you it is, it's really a performance unto itself um, Mm -hmm. because you can really get that funky uh but but you know you could be too aggressive or not aggressive aggressive enough but you're really tying the reality of the screen to um like the 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 audience's brain and Mm -hmm. so that so we have like emotional effects we have which is kind of the gray area between music and sound design or sound effects then we have foley which is hands feet sync things that you perform we also have um ambiences and those are the things that are uh, like wind uh, or things that tie a scene together. And the interesting thing is you, you may think that like wind or environments 
are difficult to, or I'm sorry, not difficult, but like are like easy things to kind of pick a wind and put it in. But even when we're picking winds or uh, city noises or kind of whatever the environment is, we're, we're still trying to support whatever the story is. Like if it's eerie in a way, we can make even the natural world sound eerie without you knowing it. Mm-hmm. And it's very happy. We can make it sound very um, harmonic, even in the wind. And mm. so we think about story even when we're building out the world. And then the last uh, category of uh, sound uh, design is hard effects. And these are generally things that you've either recorded before uh, or it's something that you can kind of build out with an existing library. So things like explosions or a door slam or a door shut. Um, a lot of things that we've kind of already pre-built that we can kind of uh, massage a little bit uh, out of a giant library. And so those are, gen- those are generally like the four categories of sound design. And then you couple that with dialogue, you couple that maybe with narration, you couple that with music, and then you start to get into a mix situation where it's like, how do you craft every millisecond to be just as clear as possible? That was an excellent, excellent overview. So if there's a young person out there who's listening to this, is intrigued by this, they just got like the high level overview of what it takes to be in the industry in in terms of sound. And I love the the nuance in which you break everything down. And I'm going to say this part, if this doesn't work out, we'll, we'll edit this out. But okay, so you you just said that there are such things as happy, melodic or harmonics, wind sounds and some eerie sound effects. So I'd love to hear a little bit of what that sounds like. Right. Um, so, you know, think about being like, I don't know, like on a mountain, um, there's, it's like a cold snow packed mm-hmm. mountain, you know, they're at the top. We do a lot of trailers. So usually like when we're on a snow capped mountain somebody's in peril and they're they're they're, it's like drama and so we're usually trying to pick things that are very tonal and very aggressive and so like you know they're 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 fighting through the elements to do something in the uh the height of a mountain and so we're looking for things that sound kind of like this that kind of stuff that was just Mm -hmm. my mouth <laughs> um, <so laughs> very good. <laughs> and so that's that we're trying to get this whistle and we're trying to just get this like that's uneasy and it feels cold. Um, yes. Especially if uh, if you have any sort of like synesthesia or any of that stuff where like I got a little tingle thinking about that and I got a little chilly. Um, I think I might have a little bit of synesthesia. I don't know. That's where one sense kind of bleeds into another sense. Mm. But um, so but maybe they're in the in a mountain and it's just this gorgeous, you know, they're I don't know, we're hiking Mount Rainier. It's beautiful. It's like a beautiful day outside. And we just want it to feel open and um, inviting. And in those cases, we might slow everything down, uh, maybe have some wisp, but it's a little bit more like a little like nip in the air. So something like. And maybe really light. Um, so that's like just with wind, we can we can frame how intense something is. Um, I mean, sound is just like a big magic trick. It's just sleight of hand or sleight of ear. Uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're always just kind of like trying to divert your attention to what's happening on screen. And people say this all the time, like sound is one of the things one of the things you never think about. Um, but that's that's great, especially when you're trying to do like a big grand magic trick where everyone really thinks about what they see and they don't think much about what they're hearing. Right. Now, when you're doing that, oddly enough, we're just listening or talking to one another and the two different sound effects that you made conjured up a visual right in my mind. And one made me feel a little chilly. It's like there's something about that. Like I can visualize the little Mm -hmm. bits of snow that are being picked up uh, and just being swirled about. Right. So I got Mm -hmm. that feeling. And a lot of people don't realize this, but a lot of the emotion, the drama, whatever it is you're feeling, the ha- the happy moments, the super sad, tearful moments, if you just turn down the volume, you lose almost all of it. Mm-hmm. So this one thing that I tell my kids, I have two boys, like if there's an action scene and it's getting a little bit too much for them, I say, all you have to do is plug your ears. You'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. And they do yeah. that. And that's how they're able to regulate, at least when they're younger. Like, oh, okay. It's just like that. And uh, famously, George Lucas says, like, people don't come for the picture. They come to hear the sounds. And that's pretty much what they come for. And it's one of the things that I figured out that the difference between an independent film and a a Hollywood film is a lot into, like, the sound, just the soundscape that's created. 
And then you can tell that's a low budget film or that's a high budget film, generally speaking. Yeah. And as, as sound designers, we're picking up on everything we're seeing on screen. And not only what's on screen, the, the, as sound designers, we're thinking about how do we just eliminate the four, the box that you're looking into? Because mm-hmm. with all of this stuff, we're just looking at a big window frame, essentially. Right. Um, but when you think of like movies you love or television shows that you love, and you, you recall those scenes that are just so epic, generally you kind of forget about the framing because you're just, your, your mind has kind of melded with that. I mean, unless you're in the industry and you may think about the framing, but generally if you're not like you kind of forget about it and your mind is melded with this story. And so we're picking up on even how, uh, the, the image is colored, um, the framing of things, uh, you know, if the, if, uh, I forgot what you call it. Like when you're, if something's like short, um, stopped or I forgot what you call it when like a character's on the far right third, but they're looking outward, it's like a Mm -hmm. dissonant image. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're looking, we're trying to pick up all these cues to support those to where people don't really realize um, what we're doing. But really, we're trying to like erase those four boundaries in these stories by kind of coming out. I mean, it is a physical medium that's, ac- it's the only thing that's like really affecting our human body besides the photons coming out of the uh, the screen. Right, right. Uh, but it's coming out, it's actually like vibrating us, um, especially mm-hmm. if it's midnight and you hear, you know, big sub drops and stuff and you know, mm-hmm. uh, and you have neighbors, you definitely feel that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so we're just trying to like erase that border. Okay, I want to talk about uh, the thing that you had mentioned. Okay, I said race to the bottom. You said no, it's a race to the top. Well, like, what does that mean? And can you can you dive into that? I think it's easy to think that um, most people or all people out there are budget minded, or, or the budget is what makes the determination for whether or not they work with you. And what I've found is it has a lot more to do with like trust and um, I don't know, respect for craft mm-hmm. than it necessarily has for budget. And I think we've all, depending on where you are in your career, um, been surprised by things that are that might be higher budget than you might think. And then if you start to like tap into these like super high end advertising things, it becomes like shockingly high um, sometimes with that. Not everything, but generally, um, I found that that people want to, people take you more seriously when, when they pay you appropriately. Like those are the best jobs because people really, um, when they're actually pulling money out of their pocket, uh, they get things done very, um, I don't know, just much easier. Uh, they have a lot more respect. Uh, but I guess, I don't know. I just don't have any desire to do this if I'm scraping at the bottom. Like I'd rather just be go, just go be an electrician or something. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I just want to make sure that I can pay the team. Um, I can support my family. And I don't know, like uh, in my world, in the sound world, I just think it's so untapped um, with with how much we can do. Um, I'll, I'll kind of tell a sideways story. So okay. when you push, like we're going to talk about workflow. When you push everything through the same sausage maker of workflow, so this sausage maker that that I usually work in is, say, advertising or a trailer or a documentary or something. But it always starts with like kind of the idea. Then it goes to a script. Then it goes to pre-production. And then it goes to production. And then it goes to editing. And then it goes to sound. And then it goes to like, or maybe music was somewhere in there. Then it goes to sound and, and color at the same time. And then it, then it's, then it ends. So when you push all that through the exact same sausage maker, what you do is when we're trying to sell these ideas to clients uh, or creatives, uh, there was no room in any of that place for sound design to actually have an impactful situation uh, or an impactful thing. Because when you're trying to get uh, higher ups to approve something, the easiest way to cover your soundtrack is just by, by dropping a track of music in it, smothering it with dialogue to where it always keeps, you know, keeps your attention. And then send it along and then eventually kind of get to sound design. And then it's just like, Oh my goodness, we don't have much to do here. Um, so I'm always encouraging people to like take that entire workflow and move it around because even just changing the way that the box is, you know, I I do, I'm a firm believer that like peak creativity comes in some sort of box or some sort of rules and how far you can stretch it out. But I always encourage people to like flip things around. So, uh, a good example of this is we did this like Nike commercial uh, for Wyden Kennedy. And I remember, and sometimes this happens, it's like one out of every 15 jobs. And I'm, I'm listening for this phrase when they say like sound design will make or break this spot. 
Uh, and, and I'm like, okay, awesome. <laughs> and I'll get like a treatment. I might get a script and they'll say, you know, we want to bring you on. Sound design will make or break this. We don't even want to have music sometimes. And then they're like, okay, peace out. I'll see you in three months after we shoot it. And I'm like, no, 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 hold on. Hold on. If sound design is going to make or break this, we need to do the spot right now. And so with them, we did this thing. Uh, it was for Kawhi Leonard, Leonard, who's a basketball player. And it was like two kids debating his, if, like if he was playing himself, like in, in basketball, like if his offense against his defense, who would win? And so it was this back and forth debate. And I remember going like, this would be so much fun to just like build out three versions right now and send it to Wyden Kennedy before they shoot anything. And so I convinced him of that. I said, you know, get your copywriters to actually perform it, you know, just pull up, you know, do the voice memos on your phone and uh, perform it and just send us all the raw files and we'll build it out now because it's a short spot. And so uh, we did. And we had uh, kind of the copywriters doing the back and forth. Um, we built out this whole like ticking clock idea. Um, we, we, we were able to kind of like explore kind of unique sound design and, and panning and kind of unique sounds because we didn't have music um, kind of taking up a lot of sonic room. Um, then they went and so they kind of approved the sound before it ever went to went to shoot. And then when they went to shoot, they had they had the soundtrack right there. So the actors knew exactly what the pace needed to be in order to fit all of this in 45 seconds. Uh, so they could, they could reference that. Um, the cinematographer knew like the exact pace of everything. So they knew kind of like how to move and how to frame because they kind of could hear it all. Um, and uh, like the editor just had like a blueprint before anyone ever shot a single frame. And so that's kind of like an example. And the interesting thing is the end of that uh, process sounds it's like 98% exactly the same as what we did before we ever mm. shot it, uh, before they ever shot it. And we have that on our website too. But it's it was this fun thing where it's just if you start taking that sausage maker or that workflow idea and turning it on its head, if you're writing for sound in, in um, the scripting phase, like that's where sound design magic really happens. It's not when we're trying to shoehorn it in at the end. Mm -hmm. I think those are the best kinds of projects. And why don't we have a listen to that right now? Gentlemen, the Kawhi question, offensive or defensive genius? Offense, you may proceed. Thank you. Contention one is Kawhi gets buckets. The evidence substantiates a domination of all rounds. Isos, post-ups, daggers off the dribble, fadeaway game winners. Contention two, check the points and check the points again. Defense, the floor is yours. Contrary to the offensive rhetoric, it's the Quiet Storm's lockdown D that towers supreme. He's led the league in steals and defensive ratings. The call's like a supernova black hole, a shutdown corner, or a game-altering paradigm shift that silences his entire team. But the man is hit game-winning dagger after game-winning dagger. But he has more steals than fouls. Yeah, but it's the threes that he makes that make the coaches think he runs on anti -free. He's the reigning two-time defensive player of the but year. But his dunks, though? He's everywhere on the court. But his dunks, though. Gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Consider a hypothetical question. Could Kawhi get buckets on Kawhi? I did see that, by the way. So it was a fascinating process. So I'm curious, though, since we're talking about working with clients who decide who they want to work with, when it came to composers, a lot of times they would ask, especially on big campaigns, composers to demo music and determine based on how inspired they were by the music they heard, if they would hire that that uh, composer or not. With sound design, it's seems like it's a very different process. So can you take us through what it is like for you to work with a potential client and what they ask you to do and your approach to it? Sure. Um, I don't love the demo approach, even though that right. is something that happens in Sonic branding, which is something mm. that we do. Right. Uh, when you're actually trying to like make a, a company audio signature. And even in our case, we would not do that just for like a pitch because that is an incredibly detailed months long process of, mm -hmm. of learning about um, the company and, and putting those values into this like, you know, few seconds of sound. But generally, when we're thinking about um, something that's really high end, so uh, there's a lot of mixing that just like it kind of goes through the same sausage maker and we we mix it, we, we do, the editor does some of the sound design, we might replace some of it. So that's pretty straightforward. But with something that might be um, more intense. So we did like the entire like Ford Bronco relaunch campaign. Um, that was something where they came to us and they said, well, like this car has not been in, this vehicle has not been in production for a decade. I can't remember when the last Bronco was before right. this. 
And so, but it's going to be important because we're going to be out in the desert. We're f- flying around. We're not even using, I don't even think they used a Bronco out there. I think it was one of those cars in advertising that has all the, it's like just a shell and it has white dots on it. Yeah, I know what it. you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, we didn't even see the vehicle in in, in the edit uh, because that was all being, um, uh, the visual effects team put that on there. That's a shocking thing to me, by the way. <laughs> when you see car commercials on TV, a lot of times the car is not even there. It's like a shell mm-hmm. of a car with a bunch of like VFX dots or something on it. And then they mm-hmm. put that on there. So that was the case in here. But the concern that we had was like, well, how do we get these engine sounds? With other car spots, we can usually find really high quality recordings or get recordings of um, maybe the the year before model. And we look at the specs and we see, has the engine changed or anything? With this, there was no prior model. And so we had to work directly with Ford. Um, It's really trying to solve these problems ahead of time. Uh, We had to work with Ford to get them to record it. It was under these mega NDAs and um, uh, luckily had kind of like an open door thing. And and for us, we were just like, okay, we can't can't physically be with the car, but we, we need for you to just tear this car apart to make it sound great. So like just slam on the gas on a dyno, which is the thing you put your car wheels on to where you don't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like or, a car treadmill? Yeah, it's like a car treadmill. And mm-hmm. uh, and I think they also had a track too, so they could go do that as well. I see. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot of solving problems ahead of time. And then we get kind of a bank of just a ton of like random um, car sounds. And then it's us kind of like finding them, seeing what has the most uh, energy. We might need to do some processing because really in, in vehicle or like car spots, it's that the voice of the car is the is the engine. And so we want to make sure that we get that right. And so we spent a lot of time kind of crafting every nuance of how the car moves. Um, you know, if, if, if they make a sudden left turn, all the little things that'll happen to the car, uh, we want to make sure that that sounds great. But we're also like coloring the entire piece with those emotional sound design moments because we we know what we want the viewer to be feeling. And so we will kind of enhance these sounds and add um, these emotional, uh, uh, these emotional type of sounds to kind of evoke uh, a feeling along the way, um, and that's just really for like car spots. And then kind of along the way, we're we're going back and forth, and we're sending screeners to all these people who um, will say they love it, or why don't we change this or whatnot. Um, so yeah, that's just with that. Something like sports, we are just trying to like make everything hyper real. Um, like you are, your ear is like one inch away from every single piece of action, which mm-hmm. doesn't sound the same when you're watching a basketball game or something. But when you're hearing a basketball spot, it's just like so vivid and, and, uh, like in your face and, and right. that's kind of like an American style in general. Mm-hmm. Like the bounce of the ball against the, uh, hard floors and the squeak of the sneakers and all the, like somebody breathing heavily, uh, the, the fabric right. kind of rustling up against somebody, somebody's body, right? And we never want you to realize that we're affecting those things a little bit, but we Mm -hmm. are taking these raw sounds and um, sweetening them, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, where where we might have more mids and more lows. You know, if someone's just dribbling, for example, we might have more um, low end hit. Than, than what you'd hear in reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, we don't ever really want to kind of cross the line of, of, of the viewer now going, ooh, this sounds all fake. Um, but thankfully, mm-hmm. for the past, I don't know, 50 years of movie making, uh, thanks to kind of like Star Wars and everything beyond that, uh, the, the whole like American style of sound design is this hyper real, hyper close mic, sweetened um, like view of the world. Mm-hmm. Now, I watch films and I pay attention to a lot of things that are going on. And oftentimes I'm thinking to myself, and as I'm enjoying the moment, I'm not totally broken from the moment, but I think that's not really what that sounds like. There's a growl of an animal in there and it's a, it's an, it's a machine. There's somebody's like layered in a hundred different sound effects, uh-huh. but I don't mind it. I'm totally okay with that. So uh, is it your philosophy then to not to bring in other sounds that are not natural to that thing or oh, is we it sure we definitely do that <laughs> okay you do <laughs> i'm sure we said we have some lion growls and stuff in that uh bronco spot um right. those things just work really well with cars and especially mm. when you're trying to give cars a voice yeah and you're trying to get get some sort of like human emotion with a machine it's great to bring in um especially sounds that our kind of primitive brain interprets as um, aggressive. 
And so mm-hmm. one of the most popular things, it's like the TIE fighters in Star Wars is an added elephant, like like kind of doing the the bellow elephant thing. So that's kind of what makes that characteristic of that ship as it's flying by you. And it sounds scary. Uh, when we're doing stuff like car spots and especially when cars are going by, we'll definitely like add like a, like these, like these guttural, um, like have you ever heard like a lion growl? It just sounds amazing. And it just, and it just brings so much life to it. And again, it's so hidden, even though if you heard the lion growl separate, you would very clearly hear. It's like one of those, um, cross-eyed puzzle things. Like once you hear exactly the source material, it's very easy to pick up on hearing that in the in the final product. Uh, but oh yeah, we do that all the time. And here's how that Ford Bronco project turned out. There's still some wild out there. You just have to look for it. And to look for it, you need something that's just as wild as the wild. You need something that can look adventure in the eye and give it a firm handshake. Something built with the toughness of an F-Series and the spirit of a Mustang. a Bronco. Built as wild as what you're looking for. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Dallas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to our conversation with Dallas Taylor. The question I really want to know from you is that with the Bronco people, uh, was it a single bid situation or were they talking to a couple of people and what did you do if it was a competitive situation to get them to feel like, yep, I trust you. You're the right team. You go do this. Yeah, I think it was the director that brought us on, somebody that we'd worked with before, but that never Mm -hmm. means that you're going to necessarily get the job. Um, as far as when you're actually negotiating with a client, um, my tendency when I get, and I, I broke this rule just the other day and I'm, I'm still like kicking myself for it. But when I do the first call with an agency or a creative, um, as a creative, luckily we're in a, I'm in a situation where I have a producer who can really deal with the money and those type of things. And then Mm -hmm. I'm the creative director of the studio. The one thing that I learned is that I should never, ever, as the creative, especially on the first call, ever start getting into money or talking about that sort of stuff. Mm. My number one job, and I put this on a whiteboard right in front of me off camera, is to get them excited. My only job on that first call is to be fully creative. Like if they start diving into money or whatever, I go, you know what, that's not my thing. Sam, my producer, uh, handles that. But once we get off the call, we'll we'll talk and then uh, she'll she'll put together a bid. And so there is a lot of like... Um, theory in that. Uh, and, and, and if I mess that up and I'm 45 minutes into a call and then I start digging into money and stuff, it just kind of sours the conversation. Mm-hmm. So I always find that the best thing to do, um, I mean, people are coming for an experience. People want to know that they're in the best hands for that job possible. And so as the creative leader of the studio, uh, my job is just to spitball on the highest level and get everyone like jazzed about sound. Um, and so that's that's really how like the biggest technique that I have is that like I do creative, Samantha does money and everything else. And of course we're talking behind the scenes and I own the company. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think like that's that's hard. And if you're a solo creative, that's really hard to do. Um, but I, I would encourage people to kind of if you're having a conversation, especially in real life or on Zoom or something like that, 
Number one thing, get them excited, push money to after, like slow the process down. When we're talking about, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on what's happening, like that process does not need to be a rushed process. Uh, It needs to just be slow, methodical, and uh, really well thought out. And it starts with one call that is really just like, I mean, if you wanted to call it a performance, um, a performance of just like every thing that you could possibly do creatively to, to boost this spot. And so, mm-hmm. so that's really my theory, uh, with that. We don't get every, every spot because right. so many things are, 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 um, relationship based. So someone might, yeah. might know some other sound designer or whatnot, and that's okay. There's plenty of work to go around. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've, I've been working in advertising for 20 some odd years and I'm always fascinated by how other people approach things, especially because you're in a different part of the post-production pipeline chain. And so I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your process pre that call and the mindset, because you said about getting excited. So let me just do the first part and then I'll, I'll follow up with the second question, which is sure. what's your process like to prepare for this call? We realize how important it is this first call to build a genuine connection because it's, it's like if you have it, then you have a shot of doing this work. If you don't, that kind of ends the the affair, right? So what are you doing to prepare for these calls? The first thing is to actually evaluate if we're the best for this job. Um, most of the time, I think we are. But if I recognize that we're not, I don't want to waste anybody's time. Um, especially when we're talking about sound, like heavy sound design and stuff. I feel really confident about our our, our um, process. But not only is this the best job for us, but is this project something that, I don't know, is at least good for the world or at least not not bad for the world. And so generally, um, thankfully, 11 years into the studio, we do have the opportunity to say no and survive. Uh, that took a long time to get to that point. But for us, I found in the past that even bringing on certain projects or hearing or, or, or maybe a repeat client that we had a really bad experience with or something, like the, the process is really like, do we want to take this job? Mm-hmm. Um, because, because if we don't, or if we had a negative process before, or if it's something that's bad for the world or just negative, and it's just going to make our gut churn, um, that takes a lot, even if though we may get financially compensated for that, it takes a lot of an emotional toll out of our studio. So that's why we generally stay away from like hardline politics. We definitely do cause-based stuff, but like hardline politics or like slimy stuff. I just learned like over the years, I've worked on so many different types of projects um, that I found that the content that comes through the screen is generally reflected in the process. And what I mean by that is if I'm working on something like the Real Housewives of something, something, Mm -hmm. almost every time I've ever worked on kind of a reality show that's like crazy in its way, uh, the whole process is like that. Like everyone kind of absorbs, you know, we all absorb each other's energy. And when all of those, um, I don't know, all this tape and it's just like drama and all this stuff, I found every time if something's dramatic on screen or especially pointlessly dramatic, it comes through the, 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 the post-production process too. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of evaluating things like, do I feel good about this? Um, do I want to do this sort of thing? Like, do I, am I this is going to wake me up in the morning and I'm like, I can't wait to work on this. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. And then, um, you know, once we cross that, that bridge, I'm generally going to be excited about whatever it is. And so then, then it's really like to prepare for that, that call. It's knowing what the brief is, not just skimming it, uh, really understanding like what they're trying to communicate, how sound can play into that. Cause usually, you know, they're all going to, most of them are going to have music, Right. Uh, and really just trying to solve problems along the way. Like if I see something that's super sound designy, I want to make sure that I'm prepping to where when I come in, I say, hey, let's let's get a sound design pass for your editor. Like we're not going to charge any more, but we're going to start doing giving sound design. Uh, give us some super rough cuts. We're going to sound design it. And we're going to split everything out and give it to the editor where the editor can then influence how that's used. Because um, it's very hard to shoe- shoehorn that in when an editor hasn't already set up those those beats. And it's mm-hmm. very hard to shoehorn that in when it's when it's already semi-approved, like up the food chain. And so, right. yeah, I'm trying to just like see where the potential problems are, how I can alleviate those fears, and then just, uh, you know, how can I, I don't know, I think this is this part's just really natural. Like if I'm excited about it, I'm just going to be like peppy and go through 
I'll start talking really fast and, 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 and start saying, oh, we could try this or maybe we could try this or, you know, maybe we could try this totally unique, unique thing. And in Wyden Kennedy's case, I was like, well, why don't we just, why don't we just do it right now and send it over in two days and <laughs> let us know what we, what you think. <laughs> and so, yeah, just kind of getting myself psyched up. But usually it's like, if we accept the project, I'm already psyched about it. Mm-hmm. Do you have like go-to questions that you have that are just good old standbys to kind of dig into what the real problem is that they're, or their fears? how you surface them? Um, generally I don't because I usually already know what those, those process, those, those fears are. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of times it has to do with, um, how do we fit everything into, uh, I don't know, a one day session with 14 people crammed in a room all saying like, well, I think we should do this. And yeah, I think we should do that. And I think we should do that. And it's like, just like created by committee. Um, sometimes that works, but, uh, those are usually the fears is like when they see like really potential for sound design um, and that high-end sound, it's like, I'm always saying like, bring us in earlier. And they're always nervous about like, oh no, but is that going to cost a ton of money? When we're invested in a project, like we're, once we check the box on, okay, we are doing this project and we, yes, we're doing that. And that's the budget we're going to do. I just kind of forget about the budget at that point, because then we have to put our name on it. Uh, There's no part in the credits, um, you know, especially for spots that says, give them a break. They only had a day on this. So if de facto sound is like touching a project, uh, we're, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that we're represented well, ultimately that the client is represented well, um, but we give it our absolute best shot as early as possible and preferably like in close uh, relation with the editor. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you for doing that. Uh, you said that you started the company, I think, 11 years ago. So I'm taking notes correctly here. Mm-hmm. After having done a stint or several stints at different uh, in-house departments at different broadcast companies, right? Yeah. So that puts you at around 2009. And if I remember, right. the financial world was just just in the pit around 2008, <laughs> 2009. So what gave you the genius idea to start a company and go off on your own in just like what many people called it like an early depression with sound people in general, um, we have this very 90s mentality mm-hmm. that if you don't have a million dollar studio and if you don't have a hundred faders and a billion knobs, like you can't succeed. <laughs> it's like every every uh, sound student goes to, I don't know, some sound school. And like the first thing they do is get into the big mix room and they take a picture leaning over an audio board where you can see all the audio board and then they make that their Facebook profile picture like that's the mentality of a lot of sound um kind of people as you get into it but so 2009 it wasn't shortly after like this kind of breakdown of um i don't know like breakdown of that that structure it really started to crush down in the 90s early 2000s it was like really you could start making full records in your in your bedroom and stuff right the only thing that hadn't caught up was the was the mental aspect and so in 2009 when i started the company that was like the first year that you could do all the same stuff in Pro Tools LE, which is basically the Pro Tools Lite version of Pro Tools HD. And I don't think anybody really knew that, um, at least client base. I could, like they were unlocking all the software uh, back then. And I, and I recognized back then that I didn't need like $800,000 of an investment to start this thing. I needed like $15,000. And then I could compete with everything uh, on that. And I saw back then that this industry, and I still don't think we're, we're even, I, th- I think we're in the infancy of this, uh, of this as sound designers. I saw that we're in the infancy of sound not being a technical role, but being a talent-driven role where people come to certain places because of what they're able to achieve. Um, and I still, and I'm seeing that kind of every year we're getting, it's becoming more and more talent driven. Um, it, people are caring less and less about what tools you're using or where you are, any of those things. It's very much like, well, what can you achieve and how can you impress me? And I love that because that's mm-hmm. happened with designers uh, in the 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. That's happened with composers once we had the, the ability to kind of go wherever. Uh, sound design is now in that pocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so, so the biggest thing is, uh, yeah, the financial world was kind of in the toilet, but everything became like a 10th or a 20th as expensive in a, in a very short time. And that's exactly when I like left and started to do it all my, myself. And then since then, of course, I've bought a bunch of toys and, and all that, but still nothing like what, 
kind of mid 2000s, 90s level stuff would be. Mm -hmm. So do you think we're there today in 2020 uh, that the the perception of what uh, sound designers do has shifted from a, a technical thing into a more of artistic thing that you're kind of coming to a person for their philosophy, for their ear, so to speak, and how they kind of see things in their mind and how they construct things? Are we there there yet? Absolutely mm -hmm. not. <laughs> not at all. Uh, because, okay. you know, I think that until we get the general public and, and just where sound is being thought about more in line with the other senses. So here's a little example. You can look, and anybody who's listening right now, look in any direction. Like, it would be hard unless you're going on a hike in a very undeveloped woods to find anything that's not human-made. Or maybe you're at the ocean. And, you know, if you're at the ocean, then no one cares because you're spoiled right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so anything, everything is, is designed. Like, how many things in just your periphery has been designed meticulously uh, by a human? And that's mm -hmm. great. We're hu humans are very, very visual. Um, when we jump over to taste, and we have these five senses. So sight, we have taste, we curate what we eat. Um, we curate, right. uh, if we don't like something, we don't eat it. If we like something, we eat more of it or get deeper and deeper into, you know, being a foodie like I am, uh, our sense of touch. Like if something like our couches or chairs, um, if we get a headache, we take ibuprofen. Like our sense of touch is important. If something hurts or if it's uncomfortable, we fix it. Our sense of smell, if something stinks, uh, we, we have a candle or Febreze or we, uh, <laughs> you know, we have sewage, all these things generally with sight, taste, touch, and smell. We curate those and we don't need anybody to say, like, I don't have to be a designer to have an opinion on visual, the visual world. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be a world-class, you know, three-star Michelin chef to have an opinion on what I like to eat. Um, I don't have to be a furniture designer to, to, to uh, or like a, <laughs> a biologist or, or chemist or a pharmacist in order to go, oh, I'm going to take ibuprofen for this. And I don't have to be like a soap maker in order to have an opinion on what I like to what I think smells good or smells bad. But with our sense of hearing, generally our culture has become music and nothing else. Music is awesome. Music is also human made, which is also awesome. But the vast majority of the sonic world, the vast majority of the sonic world is not human made. And I also believe that as much as we have made incredible human made sounds uh, through music, the natural world is, it, we can't keep up with the natural world. The natural world is absolutely stunningly gorgeous. And anyone who's sat in a quiet forest next to a, a trickle of a, of a creek or anyone who's listened to the waves lap for hours uh, on the ocean knows that that is speaking to a much deeper place uh, in our soul and our minds than, um, than, than traditional music. And music can mm -hmm. do amazing things, but it's a little overt. Whereas nature is some, from the beginning, the dawn of human history, nature has been embedded into our minds. And so that's, that's Im important to us. And, and, I, and I want us to like celebrate that. And I want people to curate what they hear. If they have a squeaky door or something like, and you've had a squeaky door for 15 years in this place, put some WD-40 on it. Like cut off your, you know, if you don't break anything, like turn off your breaker and just listen to how quiet everything becomes and then rebuild what you want to hear there. Because uh, reality is, is like sound can like cause uh, stress hormones and um, that can cause heart disease and like health problems and stress and anxiety. And we have enough of that already. Um, but I want people to like curate that stuff. I mean, another thing that's interesting about this, um, I've, I've done a show about kind of how sound works in space. And most people know there is no sound in space. But if you have an atmosphere, you can kind of have a sound-like thing. We're very visual creatures. And what's cool about light is that light can, tra can, can travel from the farthest reaches of the entire universe to the other side of the universe, like through photons and stuff. It's wild. But with sound, if we just go like, if we just were on a rocket going straight up, a few miles up, we're, it's, it's done. Like we don't have any more sound at all. And, and it just goes on forever uh, of silence. And if we fall into Venus or we fall into Jupiter, we might have a little bit of sound. But as we know with helium or other gases, it just sounds totally different. So uh, our ears and our sense of hearing is so Earth-based. And, uh, and it's beautiful. And, uh, and I want people to go, you don't have to be like an angry ponytailed guy in a dark room uh, that you don't poke the bear because that person knows all about sound and there's this audiophile idea and non-audiophile 
and you can't have any opinions unless you're an audiophile. Like I want everyone to have an opinion, just like you have opinions on all these other things. Mm -hmm. You probably know this, uh, but I remember uh, on one of these NPR related programs, I don't know if it's Radio Lab or TED Radio Hour or something, where they were talking to a person who wanted to capture the natural world in pure soundscapes. And he said it's increasingly becoming harder and harder to find spots in the world where there isn't some kind of human in intervention or overlap there. And I was just listening to some of those sounds like him in the deep woods or somewhere. And he's like, it has to be far away enough from, from where an airport is and anything or any of the humming from uh, electrical lines. And it's seemingly like harder to find these spaces. Are you familiar with this piece? Perhaps? Yeah. I think it's the one square inch of silence, which is yes. uh, Gordon Hempton. Uh, he mm -hmm. lives in uh, far northeast Washington state. And he's gone way out in the woods there and kind of deemed one place the least human made noise um, place in, in the world because he's traveled all over the place. Mm hmm. It's true. No. Um, yeah, there's mm -hmm. there's just human-made sound everywhere. Uh, we've done shows on kind of the human-made, like noise pollution. Uh, we've done shows, even the one that's really fascinating is the, the noise pollution in the ocean is pretty wild to the oh. point where, yeah, shipping traffic. Like if you put oh, your okay, head under the water, um, and if there's a ship even like a mile away, it's very, you can hear it uh, under the water because sound travels in a different way. Mm -hmm. Now you compound this with with life under the ocean and you have these shipping lanes and travel We've, we've documented over the past 60, 70 years, whales that have completely abandoned all shipping lanes because it's too loud. The other thing that's interesting is that whales, uh, we've documented whales vocalization getting higher and higher in pitch because their normal vocalization, which sounds something like, like that, mm -hmm. that competes with shipping noise. That's like, so in order for other whales to hear them, they had to go, and we have tons of recordings of, of literally whales in the ocean changing the way that they vocalize because of our human um, action. And so mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah, and that's just in the ocean, uh, let alone like in, uh, outside of that. But yeah, it's important that we have solace and space to be able to listen to nature. Yeah, and if you were just tuning in just for that moment, you might be like, wait a minute, did I just turn in, tune into Finding Nemo and doing the Dory impersonation of a whale? But no, we're talking to Dallas and he's telling us about how humans are changing the way that uh, the natural world hears and perceives sound. Uh, and I wanted to bring this up, this whole idea of natural sounds. And then I thought that might be a great way to segue into your TED Talk, which I listened to. And it seemed odd to me. Here's a guy who listens to sound, produces, manipulates, designs sound for a living, and you wanted to celebrate this John Cage, uh, John Cage thing about silence. I think it was a uh, four three three, and mm -hmm. it was it was an interesting thing. Like I, I could see like why somebody would want to do this. Anybody except for you. So tell us what the motivation or inspiration was for you to talk about the power of silence. So I went to music school. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I was a trumpet mm -hmm. player. And I remember in college thinking, oh, John Cage, I don't know, kind of weird right. and esoteric <laughs> and maybe got attention because he just did weird things. Yeah. So it took me a long time, one, to hear music normally, um, like to actually uh, enjoy it. Uh, I, uh, in, in many ways, not always, but I feel like music school ruins music in a lot of ways, um, or at least the love and enjoyment. Uh, but with John Cage, just as I've gotten older, 20 years after college, just John Cage has always stuck with me. And 433 in particular, I just, I don't know, I just kept, I don't know, not necessarily meditating on it, but just thinking about it over the years and just wondering like, okay, the silent piece. Um, and, and so 433 is really famous that it's, it's basically three movements. A piano, a pianist comes out, mm -hmm. sits down. And uh, for the first piece, just closes the piano lid. Um, and they sit there for, uh, I think it's a minute and 30-ish, something like that. Um, and then they, like, open the piano lid, then they close it again. And then 30 seconds, then they open it and they close it again. They just sit there. And so it's very uh, awkward for, the, for mm -hmm. the, the audience. But what is John Cage trying to communicate there? Um, well, he was really influenced in kind of like uh, all, all kinds of things. And he had, he had always talked about, uh, at least when you start to do hear interviews with him, as, as just like sound and music are not necessarily one or the other. Sometimes they can kind of be one and the same. And so that, that concept just kept 
I don't know, just kept uh, sticking with me. And I, I eventually I was like, okay, let's green light a 433 episode. And then I kind of learned along the way that this was not a piece just to be lazy or to um, kind of just sit there and make everyone feel awkward. It, first, it was a protest because back then, Muzak, the Muzak Corporation, was putting music in every like department store and and uh, grocery store, just like we have today. We have music everywhere, and back then it was like the start of it. And so he was like, "What if I sold? What if I sold like a four and a half minute long piece that's silent to the Muzak company, to where I can just have peace and not listen to anything when I do shopping or whatnot." And then it kind of started out as that kind of idea or that joke, if you will. And then over time, it started to become much more serious. And then he started realizing, wow, well, I don't know, the traffic. I mean, for him, he was like the traffic on Fifth Avenue uh, is musical in its own way. When you really unlock that, like there's a big difference between hearing and listening. You know, we're hearing all of these things, but you can stop for a second and really put all of your consciousness into what you're hearing specifically and that is a different experience than just kind of going through the world, um, you know, just just passing by things. Uh, and so, yeah, I just became really fascinated with that. And really, it's a, what I what I found through studying 433 and kind of doing a whole show on it is that John Cage was trying to it was not about silence. It was about appreciating the world for what it is and its sonic glory. Um, and it was really kind of putting sound in the same place as music and framing it to where this moment in time that's fleeting and that will, will evaporate into the air, never to be heard again is important. And, and the way that like our ear or our uh, eardrums vibrate, like that's, that's a visceral experience if you can really um, put your, put your consciousness into it. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't know, like I, pra I practice that. I think we all need to be a little mindful of our reality right now because there's so many external factors kind of like trying to stress us out and, um, and for me, I, I, I try to, I don't know, become a little mindful and conscious about my, what I'm listening to if I ever need to ground myself. Mm. And for our audience, if you want to listen to the full version or the expanded version of what Dallas just shared with us, I'll include it in the show notes and you can listen to the whole thing. Now, before we get out of here, I wanted to ask you a question about the, the whole uh, naming de facto. De facto, does that mean the, the default, the standard? Like, where does that name come from? Yeah, it's like uh, de facto is one, just like a cool name that sounds mm -hmm. awesome, de facto sound. It's also a word that like most people think they know what it means, but most people don't, <laughs> including myself for the longest time. Um, it's like when you're talking about like uh, the de facto government, it's like it's not the real official government, but it is the one that's actually ruling. So the way that I think about it with de facto sound, it's a little bit of a play on that 90s mentality. It's like yeah, like the rule book is this, you know, the rule book is that you have to bunch of, have, a, have a bunch of shiny knobs and lights and blinky things to work because a client, the rule book is like the client can't think for themselves and they need all this, this visual stimulation in order to really like appreciate what you do in sound. Uh, I don't like that at all. Like, I think that we should be able to speak uh, as sound designers without saying a word uh, when we send review pieces, which we do all day long. Uh, we do not put explanations with it unless it's specifically mm -hmm. given. Uh, it's it's easy to kind of fall into this trap. It's just like, what we're trying to do here is like this thing and feel this and da 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 da. And it's just like, none of that matters. Like we have to be able to like speak with sound only. And so de facto sound is really kind of like, to me, throwing the rule book out and saying, this is just the way like the world is now and not this kind of 80s, 90s, 2000s mentality. Um the world now is uh, content is democratized. You can put things on YouTube and be wildly successful because there's no boss. Like you're, you're making authentic content because you don't need uh, the gatekeeper of a film festival or a, or a TV network uh, or, or somebody to like tell you that it's okay to go make stuff. We can just do it now. Um, that's our world. Our tools are like ever expanding. Like weekly we have better and cooler toy toys and stuff. And I don't want to sit around and like wait for approval from somebody not in a sound department to say, I don't know, do you really need that like noise reducing thing? <laughs> like, no, like the re the reality now, the de facto world is that yes, you know, our edge is being able to be like on top of, of, of ability. And so, yeah, that's kind of what I think of like de facto sound meaning, mm. by the way, no one has ever asked me that in 11 years. Really? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I guess people wild? just make assumptions, right? Yeah. I think it's like, Oh, I know what that word means. 
but right. I won't say anything. <laughs> mm, so I'm glad I got that in. Yeah. So thank you very much for being a guest on my show today. How can people find out more about you? I would say since you're listening in a podcast player right now, go subscribe to 20,000 Hertz, which is all spelled out, T-W-E-N, et cetera. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the podcast, and that's the closest relative to what you're listening to right now. Over there, we've done kind of like taken little sounds like the THX Deep Note or the Netflix audio logo or Brain Science, and we've kind of expanded it into like a 20, 25-minute long show uh, that takes 200-plus hours to make every single episode, super highly crafted, lots of sound design, all of that stuff. So I'd say, number one, go check that out. But if any of these things kind of like spark like an agency person or, you know, people are like, oh, I really want to know about DeFacto, uh, you can find us at DeFactoSound.com. And uh, we also have an Instagram uh, page where we where we post really dumb videos a lot. Like we'll take a random TikTok video and re-sound design it. Uh, we also put that on our YouTube page too. So uh, I would recommend Instagram. And YouTube follows as well as going to 20,000 Hertz in your podcast player and tapping subscribe. Awesome. Now, I did listen to uh, the uh, the Netflix episode, Tadam, and I have to say the the amount of work, I, I can see it. When you say it takes hundreds of hours to produce, I could definitely feel that in the production and just the sourcing of all the different clips that you have. And it's kind of like, if I may, I hope this isn't horrible. It's kind of like abstract, but for your ears, you know, abstract, the Netflix series that the interview kind of influential, Mm -hmm. interesting people in the the visual space. I think it's like that, but for people who work in sound. So definitely check it out, everybody. It's funny that you mentioned that because I, I, there was no foregone conclusion that this show was going to be a podcast. I thought about it being a YouTube show, but -hmm. then I realized that like with everything on YouTube, like I would get so many comments on like, what camera did you use? What's your lighting setup? What's all this stuff? And I just knew that visuals would take the precedence. Visuals are amazing, but I thought I'm going to restrict, I'm going to make this box for 20,000 Hertz sound only. And so yeah, abstract, it's like chef's table, but for sound, Mm -hmm. uh, very highly crafted uh, in all and in audio only form. Well, congratulations on that. And I wish you continued success in all of your endeavors. Thank you very much. Thanks. I'm Dallas Taylor, and you're listening to The Future. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.